Hello, and welcome to Moments That Made Her, a podcast where the rare and unique women that hold senior private equity roles share their stories, including the key personal and professional moments that defined their journeys and the lessons that they learned along the way. I'm Kirsty McGuire, Executive Director of PE Win. For those of you joining us for the first time, Moments That Made Her is a production of the Private Equity Women Investor Network, also known as PE Win which is the preeminent organization for senior-level women investment professionals in private equity. PEWIN provides its members with opportunities to network, share ideas, make deep connections with peers, and empower each other to succeed. Our mission is to increase the profile of women in private equity, and our members represent institutions with over $3 trillion in assets under management. To learn more, please visit pewin.org. Our host today is Kelly Williams. Kelly is one of the most preeminent investment professionals in the private equity industry. She was one of the founders and global heads of the Customized Fund Investment Group, which specialized in providing customized portfolios of private market investments to institutional investors globally. CFIG managed over $30 billion in assets on behalf of its clients before it was acquired by Grosvenor Capital. Kelly is also the founder of PE Win. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Welcome to our latest episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Kelly Williams, the founding chair of the Private Equity Women Investor Network and also the chief executive officer of the Williams Legacy Foundation. And I'm so excited about today's episode because I'm joined by my very dear friend, Jerry Harmon. Jerry is one of the other founders of PE Win, um, and she shares with me uh, the fact that both of us once upon a time worked at Prudential Insurance Company, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. But first, I just want to say how excited I am to see you, Jerry. Same, Kelly. I welcome any time I get to spend time with you. This is wonderful. Thank you. I know. It's such a treat. So when we do our Moments That Made Her podcast, we always try to start at the beginning. And so I want to do the same with you and give you an opportunity to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and a little bit about how and where you grew up. Sure. Well, I grew up uh, born and bred in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, from very humble beginnings. Uh, My parents both went to college, but uh, my mom dropped out of college to support my father, and he never quite made it through. So um, not an unusual situation in those days. Um, but, you know, we kind of lower, lower middle income. Uh, I worked when I was in grade school and high school and worked my way through college. I went to UW-Milwaukee undergrad and then, uh, you know, again with student loans and working almost full time, I ended up going to Berkeley, uh, you know, packed the truck. <laughs> and drove so out so you were Wisconsin. a bona fide hippie is what you're telling us. I, I had elements of that. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, and it's, um, I have three brothers and a sister, and all of us actually went to college. I was, you know, the first one in my family to do so, but, um, of the children, but we all end up with uh, master's degrees in some form or another, with myself, of course, as an MBA, uh, which just illustrates, even though we didn't have any, none of us had a lot of money, we all valued education and saw it as a, as a path to achieving whatever our goals were. 
Yeah, I think many of us are great examples of that. I'm, I'm also the first person to ever go to college in my family, which has been in the America for 400 years. So uh, I think it's a good example of the trajectory you can have if you pursue education. Um, exactly. So you, you referenced this a little bit in your intro, but tell us a little bit about your first job. Well, I started babysitting my siblings, you know, because I was the oldest growing up uh, quite early. So that was certainly my first unpaid job. <laughs> I think my first paid job was uh, working in a candy store. Uh, so learning retail, making caramel apples in the back of the store. It wasn't probably very good for my, uh, <laughs> for my health, but it was yeah. a lot of fun. Uh, then I worked at a PDQ, another retail and then eventually I actually started working um, more in the business side of things and had a job at an insurance agency working on pension asset management administration, uh, kind of learning how pension funds are designed and define benefit and define contribution plans and all those kinds of exotic things in those days. Wow. Well, that you know, it's similar to, me, to my background. Um, listeners have heard me talk before about my very first job, which was at Dairy Queen. Um, rocking okay. those very fashionable brown polyester uniforms that we used to wear. Um, and <laughs> well, it, I've done my show, yeah. yeah. Waitressing, bartending, all those kind oh, of fun absolutely. things, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So given that background and given the fact that, um, you know, folks like us who, who are the first people in our family to go to college, we likely had never heard of private equity before. I certainly hadn't. Um, at what point did you decide to pursue a career in private equity? And, you know, what kind of led you to that decision? You know, it's kind of interesting. I, I think you know this, but I actually started in uh, an undergrad with a, a degree uh, as, as a dance major, thinking I was going to teach dance. I did some performing. It was modern dance. So very different career <laughs> objectives in, in the early days. But I also started taking some business classes and really enjoyed those. And Ended up, uh, and I did end up do some teaching, but I ended up with a degree in quantitative analysis, <laughs> you know, and then I went to Berkeley and got a degree, you know, my MBA and with a specialty in finance. Um, and in those days, you know, private equity wasn't a, a well-developed industry. In fact, you know, it really wasn't even called private equity. You know, when I, my first job after getting my MBA was with Prudential, where we, we share the, the, the uh, common background. Um, and... You know, in those days, Prudential was doing, you know, the insurance companies are one of the large providers of capital on a private basis. And they didn't um, call it private equity. We called it, you know, when we did buyouts, we called it bootstrap financing. Mm -hmm. So we were doing cash flow lending. We were doing equity investing, but it wasn't really under the same rubric. Um, and when I was looking for a job, I knew I wanted something that had a lot of analytical challenges that allow me to learn about a lot of different businesses, but also have an element of interpersonal um, skills uh, requirement, you know, that I really wanted to be on both the people side of the business as well as the analytical side, but do something that was on a relatively sophisticated level. So that's what drew me to Prudential. That's what drew me to that kind of, you know, cash flow lending, investing, and, you know, let's call it structured finance. Um, and again, I didn't even think about it. It wasn't intentional. I want to be in private equity. These days, kids coming out of college, they typically know about private equity. They say, that's what I want to do. They're really, that didn't exist really in its current form in those days. 
Yeah, it's true. I mean, we both know we were at Prue under the uh, uh, sort of the legendary Garnett Keith, who kind exactly. of you know brought private equity. And it was it existed, but he really. I would guess, uh, organized it and professionalized it at Prue. And what a lot of people don't realize is that Prudential was one of the early investors in many of the legendary private equity firms. They were the first investor in Blackstone. You know, Garnett gave them their first $200 million, the first investor in Providence when they were still Narragansett. And they were also the first investors in firms like Kleiner Perkins and Mayfield and Excel and many of the legendary venture funds. So you think of this sleepy old insurance company, but they actually were doing some pretty cool things. Exactly. Exactly. And um, so that's what exposed me to private equity, really. And then as the industry continued to develop and my career progressed, you know, it became clear that that was everything I was doing was something that was exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't have to pivot and say, well, this isn't for me and go somewhere else. It just naturally developed, and each time I did, you know, if you really look at what I'm doing now, you know, cash flow investing, structured equity, working with private equity funds and buyouts is exactly what I was doing then. We just call it something different. Mm-hmm. So I really had a 35-year career plus, <laughs> um, you know, doing exactly what I wanted to do with different types of responsibilities and opportunities and challenges along the way, but. Uh, fairly consistent, even though it was not my intention when I was in school to be in private equity. So when you were at Prudential, were you, were you the only woman doing what you were doing? You know, interestingly, I wasn't. Um, I was one of a few, for sure. Uh, There's a woman named Susan Morse, who was working in the San Francisco office. I don't know if you knew Susan, uh, but she was one of the few senior women at Pru And I was fortunate enough to have met her, and then she did recruit me along with John Strangfeld, who eventually became, you know, the running CEO. Prudential, the CEO <laughs> of Prudential. Yeah. So and he was my mentor. Yeah. Uh, he was he was a mid-level person in the San Francisco office where I started, uh, and you know he's the one I worked most closely with. And Susan was running that office, so I actually very early in my career, which is incredibly unusual in those days, had a woman for a boss. Yeah, me too. That that was my experience there too. It's a very unique place because I, when I first went to Peru as a lawyer, I reported to a woman, half of our department were women, about a quarter of the department were people of color. My boss reported to a black man. I mean, it was very, wow. this was early 90s, right? This was very unusual to en- encounter this on Wall Street. So I think we both benefited from uh, working at a place where <laughs> we weren't the only ones doing what we were doing. Um, so how did you make your transition out of Prue? And, you know, what were kind of the the pivotal moments for you or the pivotal decisions for you that ended up bringing you to Avante? Well, it was a lot of it was driven by my personal life because um, I had, you know, unfortunately, the first marriage didn't work. Uh, and got that happens. Like, that happens. <laughs> it's all it's all fine. And then I met my now husband of, you know, 30-some years uh, when I was uh, at Peru. And he left his job. We met. He was living in California. I was living in New York for Peru and uh, working in Newark. And he moved to New Jersey. We decided to go to New Jersey. um, Or actually moved to New York first and to be with me. 
and then the idea was that eventually we would go back west where he, his career was centered as well. So it was kind of a compromise. And so there really wasn't a, an interesting next career opportunity at Peru. It had been very much a lateral move for me to, to stay with Peru and move to California. So I decided to leave and actually went to the sell side uh, and did investment banking for a few years when I moved to Los Angeles. Uh, it was a good learning lesson. I realized I didn't like that. <laughs> I liked the buy side a lot better. Um, so did that for about four years, and then I was recruited by um, one of the couple of largest BDCs at the time, American Capital, to start up their Los Angeles office. And, you know, when I was at Pru, I was there for about 11 years. And I was fortunate enough, like I'm sure you, you had this as well, Kelly, they were really good at presenting you with challenges and opportunities, right, if you're, if you're willing to step up and take on those challenges. And thankfully, I, was, I did that. They had, thankfully, I was offered those opportunities. I started, I was part of a, a new project and utility finance group that, uh, you know, did alternative energy projects when they were very new and innovative. Uh, I was part of a, I started up a cross-border international finance unit. And then I, my last few years at Peru, I helped co-manage a couple billion dollar corporate workout portfolio, which is a great learning experience. But each of these were new challenges for me. Um, and, you know, so they just, in a way, honed my skills and, you know, and confidence to be able to take that, whatever that next challenge was. And so when I was recruited by American Capital, it was to start up from scratch the LA office, building the team, the portfolio, um, the market presence. But there were all kind of things I'd done before in a smaller scale, um, but I was still doing it with support, right? There's an existing organization, uh, you know, but yet I was still starting something, somewhat entrepreneurial. And I did that for about Four years, and then I was recruited by the other big BDC, <laughs> Allied <laughs> Capital at the time, to pretty much do the same thing, except in Allied's case, I was responsible for the entire Western U.S., and uh, I was on Allied's investment committee. And then 2008 hit, and uh, another big pivot. That's when there, you know, most of the publicly traded uh, funds were closing offices, you know, Allied included, but Allied was super supportive. Uh, Bill Walton gave me my, he was a CEO and chairman, and he was a reference, and he gave me my track record, I mean, so, which was very good, thankfully. And it was, for me, it was a decision as, do I go start my own fund, or do I um, do what I've been doing for others, you know, running a division, doing something more captive. And, you know, I ended up making the leap then to start my own fund, pulled the team together, and uh, we launched in 2009, I really fun time to raise a fund, <laughs> as you can imagine. You I, know. I remember. You, you I were was there. there. <laughs> you remember. You were there. You were one of my supporters and mentors. And, you know, if not for people like you, I'm not sure I could have and would have done it because it takes, you know, it takes a village. Um, and, you know, that's it's a big risk. And I was, you know, basically supporting my family, too. So there was a big financial risk as well as personal risk. Uh, and we successfully launched. And fast forward, we're just finishing raising our third fund and oversubscribed. Ah, so. That's amazing. Love that. Well, you know, there's so many things embedded in your story that I think resonate with people. First of all, you know, I, I would completely agree with you that Prudential was the kind of place that encouraged you to, to take chances and moved you around. And this was sort of, this yep. is part of the old time corporate culture where people thought you'd spend 20 to 30 years with a company. And so they gave you the opportunity to move around. But I think 
one of the things you learn is it's okay to say yes. And this is something a lot of women struggle with. You know, they feel like they need Agreed. to be overprepared for something. Um, whereas Prue was a company that didn't feel like you needed to know everything because they, if you were talented, they were confident you'd learn it along the way. I completely agree. I talk to, you know, women's groups, particularly younger women, uh, quite often. And one of the big lessons I try to convey is you really need to, I don't know if it's be fearless, but I'll, I'll put it that way, be a little bit fearless and taking on those new challenges and opportunities and, um, take some risk because, you know, that's you, your counterparts are going to do it if you don't do it and you're going to lose those opportunities. And if, you know, if you fail, you just pick it up, pick yourself up and go after the next opportunity, uh, you know, that you'll and you'll eventually succeed. But if you don't try, it's, you know, you're not those things won't happen. You won't be progressing the way you could. And, you, you know, you don't know what you're going to miss. I mean, there are a lot of those opportunities you know, I wouldn't have predicted it wasn't a, it's never a straight line career path. And, you know, with every step intentional and planned and, you know, working out the way you think it's going to work out. You have to be really ready for anything and, you know, be thoughtful about it, obviously, but, but be ready to take on something and not be afraid. We would like to take a brief break to thank P.E. Wynn's founding sponsors, Kane Anderson Real Estate and KPMG, as well as our platinum sponsor, TPG. If you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at info at Now back to today's guest. Yeah, I know. I completely agree. As someone who was trained as a lawyer and ended up running a private equity firm. Um, exactly. The, the, the lateral <laughs> nature of that is is uh, is definitely the key to the success. The other thing you said that I think is really important, and you know I talk about this a lot, is that so many women who are senior in the private equity industry are the primary breadwinners for their families. It doesn't mean they're the sole breadwinners, but it's often the case that if they've made it to a senior role, they they are probably, you know, the people who are providing the lifestyle for their family. And that's, that's, right. a, that's a whole different burden. And it's something women don't talk about. Men talk about it, but women don't talk about it. Um, and that definitely puts a different spin, I guess, on whether or not you can take risk. Yeah, I was fortunate. My uh, husband was very supportive. In fact, he ended up quitting his job to help take care of the kids as they got older. And we had nannies for a good part of that time. But, you know, having a supportive partner or a supportive infrastructure, right? It, again, the, the village, whether it's, you know, family or just, you know, people that you surround yourself with that paid or unpaid that help you get the things done that need to be done, whether you have kids or not have kids, it's still, you know, it's a lot. And, and for most of the time, I was the sole support of my family. In the early days, it was the primary support and then became the sole support. And it is a lot of pressure. And, and then when you have, if you have kids, you know, there's still a good part of that where it feels like it's, you know, my responsibility. You know, it's not shared equally. And, and certainly in the early days when the kids were really young, I very much felt like even though I was the primary breadwinner, it was still my primary responsibility to be with the kids as, as much as a great father, um, my husband is and was, uh, it just wasn't, you know, 
prepared to take on all of that. So, I, you know, I felt like I had to be there for all, all of those things, work, you know, income, family, children. Yeah. I think that's, that's something that's very common. And again, I think a lot of women in our industry don't talk about it. Hopefully, uh, those who listen to this will, will talk about it more because I think it is uh, an added stress that, um, that goes largely unrecognized. And, and I think it, it makes it harder for women to be, uh, to be vulnerable because it is a lot to, to handle. Um, so you referenced a couple minutes ago the fact that you are in the process of raising your third and oversubscribed fund. Would you count that as the high point of your career, or is there something else that stands out that you would say, no, no, that's the high point? Honestly, I think this is the high point. It's not just because it's the third fund. It's not just because we're we went out for three hundred million and we're going to end up somewhere between four thirty-five and four fifty you know, way, way above where we expected. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what it really is is because it's it's been a tough journey. There's been a, you know, and you know this, Kelly, you and I, you, I've cried on your shoulder a few times. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and every journey has those times. And, and um, the harder it is to get there, the more you appreciate it, you know. And where we've come from where we started and the team and the camaraderie and the culture we've built. And, you know, I think we've built an organization that is really, it's, it's in a culture that I'm so proud of and a team that I'm so proud of. It's, we're highly diverse. We're 100% women and minority owned. 12 of our 16 team members are women, minorities, or both. And that's intentional. I mean, every one of them is, is you know, strong, a, and talented a person as you could find anywhere in our industry, but we are diverse and, you know, and we're not just doing it as, you know, to be representative. I mean, it's a really important part of our culture and we become somewhat, you know, mission-based. You know, our first priority is to generate strong returns for our investors and we're not a quote-unquote impact fund, but we want to have impact. And the way we're doing that is through trying to um, help the industry become more diverse. And, and help other funds, particularly in the SBIC world where we operate. And we've done that through a, a number of things, many of which the ideas came from my team members, my partners, and particularly Evelise Rodriguez-Simon, who you know well, uh, who's now our managing partner, and she started with me as a VP. You know, when you see that, that kind of talent and the kind of things that, that we can achieve as a team while still doing all the stuff that we're supposed to do, I mean, that's what I'm proud of, and that's what makes it so exciting. And now to be rewarded with lots of interest from LPs, and we have people, groups, very well-known names approaching us and talking to us about investing in us and helping us scale even further. Um, you know, we'll try. We're, we're going to be thoughtful about whatever we do or don't do, but that's why, to me, this is the the highlight because it's not just the biggest fund or the most money or the biggest title or any of those things. It's what have we created and where can we take that and what kind of, you know, impact and influence can we have on others and can we make a difference in the careers of some of these women and, and um, minorities that we've brought into our firm but also into the industry. And it's, you know, it's exciting. Yeah, I think it's incredibly exciting. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that the potential for our industry for firms that are founded by women to show another path to success that enfranchises not just women, but also men, because I think men are also craving a different way 
of working and a different culture yes. and a different way of, of achieving and celebrating success. And so I, I, you know, I love to hear when firms like yours and Holly Haynes and Adela Leva and others are succeeding exactly. by just proving what we already knew, which is women are great investors, but also you can build a firm in a different way. Exactly. And you can really make a difference and you can create a culture that's, you know, and it's really, this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. And it's been, um, we're reading all the time about the, the, um, you know, war for talent, right? Talent is, 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 and, and, what talent wants, what the younger generations want, what almost everybody wants these days is really changed, particularly through COVID. And so you have to be, you can't think the same way and have the same kind of organization, the same way of dealing with recruiting and retention as you did before. And, and w the kinds of things we were doing pre-COVID, I think really positioned us well to attract the kind of talent and, and have them in a place where they, there's flexibility, there's a sense of purpose, there's, this, um, there's a team-based culture that support, you know, where individual accomplishment could be rewarded, but we win as a team. And, and there's so much of that seems to resonate with anybody, but particularly diverse talent yeah. who hasn't been provided with that support and mentorship, um, you know, and individuality that's rewarded, you know, without having to do it the same way everybody else did it before. Uh, it, it's, it seems to really resonate. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I like you, I've been thinking about this a lot. Every time I see a report about this, um, you know, the mass uh, resignations, I keep thinking, exactly. well, that's because our work world was constructed by white men. The whole construct of work in America and also the world was constructed by white men. And there's a different way to do it. Um, and it's not that these people don't want to work, but they just don't want to be abused and ground down and, you know, be in a bullying culture. And there are just other ways right. to do it. And people, you know, people will swap money for culture, I believe. Oh, yeah. Well, Evelise is a great case in point, right? She was, and she joined me, as I said, she was VP level. Um, she was pregnant with twins. We literally launched it. She, and then she was on bed rest. We launched the fund more or less from her apartment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and not the garage, but <laughs> the apartment, right? And, you know, but she, you know, having twins and all that, we, I had to be flexible. And that's not something I grew up with, with, you know, Prudential or AmeriCap or, or Allied. I mean, that's not, wasn't part of the corporate, you know, way you uh, handle employees. So, but, you know, she would work from home sometimes. She would work four days a week or three days a week, you know, and over time throughout her career. And then she had another child. Now she just had her fourth child. Mm -hmm. Throughout her career, there's been, you know, flexibility. And she would tell you, I mean, she's, it made her so much more loyal. Frankly, it made her much more productive. And I, I can tell you, I got way more out of her than anything I've given, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it just allowed her to do be the best person she can be and as a professional. Um, and, you know, it's, we're, we're the better for it. And yeah. a lot of our success is attributed to Evelise and, and, of course, the rest of the team. I've got other great team members and partners. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I always talk about the fact that in my business, I, I never believed in FaceTime. And I believed it. if you, you know, if you'd made it to be a senior person in, in the business, you were a rock star, and I didn't care where you did your job from. And so I had partners, all of whom were men who would work at home, either Mondays or Fridays or both, because they had wives with 
big careers. And it made them, you know, it made them better partners because you exactly. respected their life and they felt very loyal as a result. Um, That's but, one of the really positive things in COVID. You know, there's a lot of negative, of course, and suffering. But to me, one of the, one of the positive things in COVID is it proved to many organizations that people can be incredibly productive in a remote way. Yes. Does, now, there's a balance has to happen because culture doesn't happen remotely, right? And you have to have the bonding and the training and all the things that happen in person. But you don't have to do that five days a week. Right. You know, so... I agree. Well, um, I want to ask you one question before we go to what we call our lightning round. And um, I want you to share if you can think of something that you would say stands out as a teachable moment, something that happened in your career or even your personal life that really taught you something that you you've carried with you to this day. I think there are probably two teachable moments. If I can take one and make it two. Um, one is that, you know, I did have a job. I didn't work out and I got fired, right? It's kind of middle of my career. And, you know, I could have let that defeat me. I could have let that take away my confidence. And, you know, look, I moped for a few days <laughs> <laughs> without question. But then I said, you know what? I've got talent. It's about finding the right place to um, put that talent to work. And it really, and I tell that to people who, unfortunately, I've had a fire, that it's about a fit, right? You're really mm -hmm. good at certain things. Maybe there's other things you're not so good at and or not as good as you would like to be or should be for that particular position. But, you know, it's finding your place. So, you know, I picked myself up and I went out there and I pounded the pavement and, you know, my opportunity came and it's been great ever since. So that was my first teachable moment. It taught myself I can do that, and you know, failure's okay, and um, and how to the at, it was attitude that got me through it. Um, and then my second teachable moment, I think, something you lived with me through this with me. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we didn't, you know, wasn't a straight success path for our fund. You know, the, every fund it's like any startup goes through some, you know, some some parts of it that don't work as planned. And, you know, we had a part, not all marriages work, and we had a partnership when we had a, you know, a marriage that didn't work uh, and um, ended up having to separate with a partner. And it was really tough. It, you know, it was not amicable. It was meant to be, but it didn't turn out that way. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, noise around, around that that made, you know, uh, question made us question, you know, can we keep moving forward with the fund? And, you know, we were able to, uh, we got through it and we've been, had our best successes ever since. So, you know, in hindsight, it was the best decision, you know, that I ever made, um, for, at least vis-a-vis -vis Avante. Um, it was the toughest decision, but the, the most important decision. And so, you know, kind of the lesson there really is, one, you can never make those decisions soon enough. I should have made it sooner, mm -hmm. right? Um, and the second is just the importance of picking your partners. That could be, you know, both obviously in your personal life, but mm -hmm. certainly in your work life. And when we're in the private equity world, we're all we're all partners, whether we're on the LP side or we're on the GP side. And, you know, it only takes one bad partner or, or one bad relationship, because sometimes it's two ways, you know, but if you can either, if you have it, in an organization, a partner that doesn't fit or is toxic or is 
for whatever reason it's not working, you've got to deal with that because um, it can really undermine all the other good stuff. And particularly culture, which I've talked about, is so, so important. And it's important to us and our success. So we made that tough decision a number of years ago. And then, like I said, I mean, it's been uh, record-breaking years ever since. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, a culture that we all love coming to work now. You know, we all, the partners are on the same page. We work collaboratively, creatively, enthusiastically together. And it's, that's a fun place to be. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. You know, I always make the point as a limited partner that we, we, benchmark GPs by how willing they are to change out management that's not working in their underlying portfolio companies. And yet we penalize them if they change out their partners in their own partnership. And so that's there are so many point. times when funds keep partners around who are truly toxic because they're afraid of backlash from the LPs. And I really think LPs have to give GPs the latitude to make those changes. And you're a perfect example of how much better things can be if, if that happens. Um, yeah, and it's, it, and it's not always even necessarily a toxic issue. Sometimes it is, right? Right. And often it is. Sometimes it can just be an incompatibility or you, you just have different um, visions of how it, the fund should be managed, what your risk tolerance is, where you need to go. Should you be on big deals or small deals? I mean, there's all kinds of reasons you could have fundamental differences that still need to be dealt with, right? And right. that may mean separating yeah. Well, I'm going to take you through the lightning round quickly and just okay. ask you for some quick responses or, or answers. And my first question is, is there a great book that you've read or listened to recently? Uh, the, the best book I've read or read and not listened to uh, recently was The Culture Code. Oh. This is actually, yeah, because uh, we keep talking about cultures. Yeah. <laughs> this is natural. That was the, the one. It was actually recommended to uh, me by Evelise, and our whole team read it. Mm. So we could all kind of learn from it together. But it, it, it's not that there's anything in the book necessarily that was revolutionary in thought, but it was very interesting to how much resonated. Great. So what's, uh, what's your guilty pleasure binge watch? Oh, oh, boy. <laughs> I've been, let's see. We just I just started watching Ted Lasso. I'm a little ah. late to the game on that one. I love it. It's You're going to love it. It's going to just make oh, you yeah, so I've happy. The, yeah, I watched the first season, and I'm getting on to the second. So, Are you that. a dog or a cat person? Definitely dog. <laughs> definitely dog. <laughs> I've I had both. I a cat, but I'm, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've had both, but definitely dogs. And then the last thing I'll ask is, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Um, I think the best piece of advice I've been given is um, to surround yourself with people that, you know, are smarter than you, better than you, what have you, different than you. Um, I, and, and I've followed that advice. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you I've got people <laughs> who I've surrounded myself that are smarter than me and better than me. <laughs> and I just know I'm smart enough to know how to support them, you know, and to guide them. But that's how we succeed. Um, the biggest advice I give people is what we talked about earlier is taking risk. Yeah. You know, yeah. Especially for women. Advice. Especially for women. Yeah. And as you know, because you're one of the founders, PE Win is a network that's been set up to support women to take risk and exactly. have other women who've been through it who know 
know how to navigate it. But well, this has been the highlight of my day, having a chance to catch up with you. I always (laughs) love talking with you and learn something about you every time I I talk with you. Uh, But thank you so much for being a guest today on Moments That Made Her. Thank you for having me, Kelly. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Scotty Wardell, co-chair of the PEWIN Communications Committee. As a reminder, the content in this recording is for general information purposes only and does not constitute advice. We give no assurance or warranty regarding accuracy, timeliness, or applicability of any of the contents of this recording. This recording is provided as is and PEWIN expressly disclaims any and all warranties expressed or implied to the extent permitted by law. Except where acknowledged, the copyright and all intellectual property rights in all material in this recording are owned by P.E. Wynn and our affiliates and should not be reproduced without our prior written consent. Other organizations or brand names used within this recording are for identification purposes only. The content set forth in this recording may not be sold, reproduced, or distributed without P.E. Wynn's prior written consent. Any third-party trademarks, service marks, and logos are the property of their respective owners. Any further rights not specifically granted herein are reserved. Thank you again for joining us today, and we hope you tune in for another episode soon.